Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? In the early 1800s, the East India Company lost its monopoly to operate in China. Within a few decades, other British companies flooded into the country in order to sell smuggled opium, tea, cotton, as well as other things. One of those companies was Jardine Matteson, setting up home in Hong Kong when the island was seceded to the British. Over the years, it moved into the mainland and set up headquarters in Shanghai as well as Hong Kong. But China's century of turmoil through the Japanese invasion, then the civil war, and then the communist takeover meant that the Jardines didn't have the easy, stable trading conditions that it had in the century before. The communists kicked Jardines out until the late 20th century, at which point reform and opening, the beginning of China's route to trade liberalisation, meant that its leaders were able to invite foreign investors back into the country. Henry Keswick, the then chairman of Jardine Matterson's, went to see China's top leadership. So today on the podcast, I speak to his wife, Tessa Keswick, who through her own work and through her marriage to Henry, has seen China throughout the last four decades at a time when the country wasn't really opened up to ordinary Westerners. She details her experiences from that very first visit to poverty-stricken China in the 1980s to her acquaintances with top Chinese leaders throughout the years in a new book called The Colour of the Sky After Rain. So Tessa, it was because of your own line of work doing business and finding opportunities for foreign companies in China that you went to the country for the first time in 1982. But over the years, you've kept going back because of your marriage to Henry Keswick. Can you tell us about that? Well, that is right. I mean, I married a few years later my husband, Henry Keswick, who was the chairman of Jardine Matheson at that time. So I had already seen him in Hong Kong in 1972 and been to Hong Kong then. But we went back to China on our honeymoon. We went to China. It was the first time he'd been there for years. We went to Beijing. And from then onwards, but probably a bit later, for various reasons, it was only in 1997 that he really started to go back and invest with Jardines to invest in China. And I accompanied him on many of his corporate trips. And I had tremendous access with him and through Jardines to the whole sort of extraordinary economic miracle which was beginning to happen, meeting the entrepreneurs, meeting the um, mayors and the party secretaries of the various different provinces and really experiencing how this extraordinary transformation began to take place. And that was from about 1998 onwards. But I did go on my own as well. I mean, I I fell in love with China, basically, in 1982. I went on my own and I developed a whole life on my own, quite separate to the corporate programme. The account of your first visit to China, I mean, I'm surprised you fell in love with it because it sounded like, in many ways, quite a challenging experience for a Westerner going into China of the 1980s. One quote that I've got down is um, your description of one of your first meals in China. Chicken covered in fat, powdered eggs, shrimps lying in an unidentifying grey substance. 
That is perfectly true. But you remember, I was, I was, I was a child who was born in the post-war years and in the north of Scotland. We weren't spoilt at all in those days, you know, and we'd seen, you know, it, England was very impoverished after the war and rationing went on till 1956. So it was a tremendous adventure. I actually I wasn't desperate to go to China at all. So it was an adventure and it was very bleak and it was very grim. It really was. But I had this extraordinary experience on that very first visit when I saw this amazing lightening of the landscape when the sun came through. And I saw this incredible sight of the care that had been taken in the fields on all the tiny little pieces of land to cultivate them properly with flowers around the edges of the terraces. And I thought, look, here are these people who are so poor that they had to have night soil on on the ground to get the vegetables growing because it was too expensive, fertilizer was too expensive. They were living on mud floors in their little houses. And yet the beauty of it was absolutely stunning. And from then onwards, I sort of thought, who are these extraordinary people? You know, the diligence and the, the work, the ability to survive was just extraordinary to me. And throughout the years, in your travels with Henry, did you ever feel like people were looking at you funny, A, because you're a foreigner, or B, because of who you were with, i.e. the modern-day iteration of what was a colonial company uh, that had been in China throughout the Opium Wars and a player in the Opium Wars? In Chinese schools, for example, the history of China after the secession of Hong Kong is taught as, and I say this in quotation marks, a century of humiliation at the hands of foreign transgressors, from Europeans to the Japanese and then civil war and then, well, the histories end in 1949 with the communist takeover because of who writes the textbooks. But how did you feel that the Chinese received you uh, as a foreigner? Well, I find that a very difficult question to answer. I mean, there's 100 years of humiliation and, of course, a legacy of Jardines and the opium trade in, in 1830. Every person I met there must have been aware of that, except possibly when I was travelling on my own, but they would have sooner or later discovered. It was never, ever mentioned. None of this. And I find that quite extraordinary, considering the emphasis on 100 years. Well, I think it's, that emphasis has got worse now than when I was there. But they, people were completely charming, whether they saw me as a sort of completely separate person on my own, or whether I was with a sort of backed up by Jardine. Nobody made a joke, which and people in England do all the time, you know, opium smugglers or something like that. Never mentioned. And not only that, it wasn't suppressed. There was genuine friendship. And that seemed to come from the fact that... First of all, I liked China very much, and I, I, you know, I just sort of went overboard. I thought it was everything <laughs> was so marvelous and interesting. I said so they knew I liked them. And I say to the book, Chinese people, because they don't have the rule of law, extra, they have an extra sensibility which we don't have anymore. For people who might help them? Well, it's just people, they, they know if you like them immediately. They, they have a sensibility. We don't need to know if someone likes us. Because we have the rule of law, if you see what I mean. We have human rights. But they 
Now, you know, they, they, they go by feeling and they go by trust. And it's not transactional, I guess, is what you mean. When it's not, transa- it's not transactional. There's no, yeah, no contract involved. So there's a, there's a tremendously charming sensibility, which is so compelling and interesting and goes very much with the whole culture right the way through. The Jardine story made a huge difference as well because, as you will know very well, it's intriguing. It meant that, Char- that Jardine, we'd come back after you know, nearly 200 years, even though we'd been thrown out, that we were back. And, and Wang Chishang said that. He said, you know, you, you were bitten by the snake, but you came back. And they're not frightened of people. You know, they like, they've had so many terrible things happen to them that actually that opium story is a, and the hundreds of years of humiliation. I mean, China wasn't in that much good shape before the foreigners came in. So it's it's a narrative that they've produced, haven't they, for cover for the the Communist Party really coming in and look how well we've done after a hundred <laughs> years of, you know, it's a little bit of that. So um, I think now, I think it's a pity that Xi Jinping has, you know, told people to beware of foreigners. Mm. Um, and this was before Trump, actually. I mean, by all accounts, after 2008, the sort of fascination of the Americans began to wear off when they realised that the West was so vulnerable. And and I think they started to give a lot of businesses a hard time, no doubt about that. And then suddenly the Americans got fed up and said, we, we're not going to put up with this anymore, you know, this sort of... And the WTO, which works so well for a while, um, and still works, but China is no longer a, a poor country um, and should really exist by the rules. So, you know, there's a lot of reform that could happen there and probably will happen. Mm. The Americans got fed up and the Chinese started disrespecting the Americans for not for quite understandable reasons, unfortunately. And that's that's continuing rather strongly at the moment. And let's talk a little bit about doing business in China. You mentioned there Wang Xishan, and for listeners who might not know, that's China's vice president, who you and Henry have met. And Wang had encouraged Henry to come back into China to do more investment, is that right? Yes, very much so. In 1998, well, him and Zhu Rongji, yes, he did, yeah. Zhu Rongji being the then prime minister. And Tessa, I think you've even been to Zhongnanhai, the compound that the Chinese communist leaders do business out of. The fact that there's not as famous as Downing Street or the White House probably says something about the secrecy of Chinese politics. Can you tell us what that was like? Oh, so exciting. Yes, we went many times, actually. Well, it's to the left of the Forbidden City, as you know. There's a high wall which goes all the way around, a very large area to the left. And you wouldn't know unless you were told, except there's some rather grand gates now with very smart-looking guards and things. So you, something, and it, you know, something's going on there. And you can get in from various doors. And it's alongside Hohai Lake. You go in these, all these brick buildings. And then at the end, by the lake, there are various reception, very grand reception halls looking like traditional buildings, you know, flyaway roofs. And, and there you have very, very formal meetings with um, whoever it is you've come to see. And we have to go with a team of Jardine's people and Henry and whoever it is sit in two enormous chairs with 
the translators crouched behind potted palms and and then we all sit in chairs and it's all it's all it's probably the sort of thing that's been going on for thousands of years actually it's the same format and what were those meetings like as you know the chinese have the most brilliant sense of humor so um but you have to be very careful not to say the wrong thing, like you said about Bo <laughs> So tell us about that, because Bo Xilai, to keen China watchers, his name will be ringing a bell. People might remember him as one of the highest ranking scalps that President Xi took when he started his anti-corruption drive. His downfall was something absolutely incredible and internationally scrutinised. So what was the faux pas that Henry made with name-dropping Bo? Well, Bo Xilai was very good-looking, tall... Chinese, who then became the party secretary of Chongqing, one of the fastest and biggest metropolitan, third metropolitan area of China up on the Yangtze River. And this was a very important position. And he was billed as probably getting into the standing committee the next year or so round. And meanwhile, he caused a tremendous stir in Chongqing and probably too much so. There was a scandal there, which took place, which included a, a, a young Englishman, actually. And we read about this a little bit in our paper. Anyway, because we had to go to Chongqing regularly, Henry did meet him several times. So one of the names he would drop at meetings occasionally was, was Bo Xilai. Anyway, it went down very badly because... And the last meeting we had with him, on that last six months we suddenly realised that this was not a name to be mentioned. But we were meeting him in Beijing in the middle of March and for another of these very formal meetings. It was the day before he was arrested and went to prison for the rest of his life. And it was an extraordinary event because it was on the eighth floor of the, the Beijing Hotel, which is a huge reception, beautiful reception room looking out over the Forbidden City. And Bo was, and his people were more than an hour and a half late, which never happens in China. Nobody is ever late. And so we waited and waited, and the mayor of, the mayor of Chongqing was there, who came to join us, which was also very unusual. And we knew him. We, we knew Mr. Wang already. And he was sweating as though... You know, something terrible. We couldn't think about it. We were with a team of people, so we walked up and down this enormous room, waiting, waiting. We had to cancel our lunch with Madame Fu Ying. And then suddenly the doors were flung open and in walked Bo, looking superb, you know, really, and surrounded by these tall men, all in dark suits. And they all sat down and we had the meeting. And I took some photographs, one of which is in my book, his eyes were completely sad, and yet he sort of operated perfectly normally. And then he gave Henry a little present at the end and walked away. He left the room with his people surrounding. He went back to Chongqing, and he was arrested by the mayor as he came on the tarmac into Chongqing Airport. But I sat opposite Mayor Wang at the meeting, and next door to Henry, but opposite... And the mayor was sitting there wiping his face. <laughs> so he must have known. <laughs> he must have known, but if anybody, you know, if you thought anybody was going to the guillotine, it would have been Mayor Wang, not Bo Xilai. 
So, I mean, the whole thing, it was so tense because we could all feel this enormous power somehow exuding over this situation. And we we didn't have a clue what was actually happening. It was just hugely powerful forces beyond our control were going on. Tessa, I was intrigued by your answer earlier when you said that the Chinese had a wicked humour. It reminded me of the anecdote that you relay in your book about the practical joke that Zhu Rongji, the then Prime Minister of China, played on Henry Keswick. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, Zhu Rongji, very important person for China, he invited them, uh, Henry, up to Beijing to say, come back to China, we, we want your investment, please come back, which was absolutely wonderful. But he stayed three months before that. He stayed in the Mandarin Hotel in London on a, on a visit with his team of colleagues. They were going to the Bank of England and everywhere. At the Bank of England meeting, he said to Henry, Mr Keswick, your hotel is very, very noisy. And I couldn't sleep a wink last night. So Henry immediately had the whole floor above cleared at sort of great inconvenience and expense, probably, to the guests there. He sort of had them quickly moved. And then there was another meeting the next day and... Henry said, um, I hope you slept better, Prime Minister, at which Zhu Rongji roared and laughed and said, no, I was only teasing you. There was nothing wrong at all. I was very, I slept incredibly well. That's incredible. I think a lot of people don't see Chinese leaders as having, I mean, at most a personality or at least even a sense of humour. No, no, probably not. Probably not. And then in terms of politics. We've talked a little bit about it already, but I think Jardine's experience in China over the last two centuries uh, is really demonstrative of how China has changed in that, you know, it was a colonial company there. Henry himself was a young boy when he had to flee Shanghai because of the invading Japanese. Then Jardine's moved to Hong Kong to do business. And then, as we've talked about, was invited back by the communist leadership in the 90s into mainland China. Well, how does the company, from your perspective, see operating in such a, you know, almost politically turbulent country? Has it been a difficult thing to sort of balance the sensitivity of? Uh, I mean, Henry was reluctant to go back because they'd lost everything for a long time. I mean, he probably could have gone back earlier, but he was very cautious. And his policy was to secure uh, the business in Hong Kong and develop it in Hong Kong and throughout Southeast Asia. And then he started on China so he, he diversified. Yes, and probably for good reason as well, given China's changing still. Absolutely. One thing that comes to mind, for example, for any Hong Kong company is the Hong Kong security law that came into place this year, which really does change, even if not for commercial firms, but freedom of speech in the city. So how does Jardine see that as a multinational company in Hong Kong? Well, I, Henry's retired, and I mean, he probably knows more than I do, but... We don't know that much, except that they've accepted the security law and they will comply with what the regulations are, just as they do in China. They have to be careful not to upset the rules and they they will do what they can. But it it can't be easy Mm. feeling that you can't be totally open as you have been before. But I, I mean, I'm sure that's what they'll do. I mean, they, they, they're business people through and through. And um, 
they want to comply and they have to. And I think even in the West as well, Tessa, I don't know if you've seen a recent book that's been published called Hidden Hand, which is uh, written by an Australian pair of authors who talk about the China's influence in the West through leading business people, whether it's or leading politicians. Is that the 48 Group one? Exactly, exactly. So the 48 Group Club being this organisation of leading politicians and business people, uh, including Michael Heseltine and uh, John Prescott, uh, would be meeting with the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and the club advocates closer relationship with China. And, and the book's authors allege that these British elite who are involved in this are being groomed by the Chinese leadership. Um, so it does seem like if you are close to China in business, um, or, or in diplomacy that you, you're seen as sort of reds under the beds. So Tessa, what do you make of that? Well, I, th- I think that's rather ridiculous because this comes down to constructive engagement. If we have security issues in Britain or indeed in America, we have to sort those out ourselves, our strategic interests. We need to have a policy about how much we want China involved in our businesses. But that's purely a strategic decision which has to be thought out and worked out and not just attack various companies because they're involved in British businesses now. I mean, what happened was there was so much constructive engagement. And I haven't read that 48 Group thing, but I've read the one by the same people, I think, about Australia, where there's a similar problem. It depends how paranoid you are and how strong your security and your strategic positioning is. You must protect your national interests and your security interests. And at the same time, have constructive engagement and friendship. What isn't right is just insult the other side and say it's all their fault. And, you know, those people like Michael Heseltine or... I don't know, the 48 group, the people who involved... Henry never did get involved with the 48 group for various reasons because I think he, he's always stayed out of politics and he felt it was political. He never had anything to do with them. But I think people like Michael who visited occasionally and, you know, he was doing that out of constructive engagement. We wanted the Chinese to come to Britain. We wanted to be friends with them. I think things changed when suddenly everything became politicised and through, through, really through the Americans. And we realised we hadn't protected ourselves. I mean, the Huawei thing, you know, it was our fault. I don't know the rights and wrongs of it at all, but our security people needed to take that decision and, and take it to the government. Mm. Originally, a long time ago, not you know, it's too late now. But I think there's a lot of fault on, on our side and I think the Chinese can play very rough on occasion. Of course, that's right. But then so can the Americans, you know, and so do we if we get the chance. But we're probably not strong now. You know, I think that a lot of that is from a lack of understanding, a lack of history. I mean, Kissinger would never advise this kind of thing. I mean, you know, whatever we think the Chinese should not be doing, it should be done behind closed doors and not through megaphone diplomacy because the Chinese really don't like it. I mean, they can't deal with that. They find it so offensive. And we always used to do things through constructive engagement. I mean, if we if we criticised every country we disapproved of in the West, we wouldn't do business with anybody. We wouldn't go there. We wouldn't be friends. 
Is that the thing that you think has changed the American attitude? You one anecdote you relate in your book is about how you went into the Chinese embassy for a lunch with the then ambassador in two thousand and ten, and obviously listeners to this podcast will know that's the beginning of Cameron's golden era with China. It seems that ten years on, we're in a completely different era now. We are in a different era. It's very sad, actually, that this has happened. I think you know part of the reason you know we've touched on various reasons. One is a sort of a fear of China's great success. Two is a tightening up of China, and China probably becoming sort of so confident that and 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 the Americans feeling they were being pushed out. Thirdly, the Americans finding it difficult to make money in China. A lot of foreign businesses、mm. had bad experiences. There was a certain amount of weak leadership, which allowed all sorts of things to happen. They didn't tighten up on WTO. There was expressly said that you know this determination to get intellectual property at all costs. I mean, all those things cause massive problems, and there is a confrontation now. We need to get go back to square one and try and sort that out between both sides. Britain could do it. We could do it. We're a small country. We could, we could do it. We got to do it quickly. What do you think Britain should be doing? Well, I think they need to have a strategy towards China, and and know whether, as I was saying, they should have a strategy about what their security risks are, what their strategic interests are, and remain friends with China, and if possible, not have to join sides. But I think it's not entirely one-sided. In that, as a Chinese person, I often cringe at the actions that the Chinese government takes in the public sphere. Do you think that China, conversely, understands the West? I think they want to. When I was there, I used to go to the party school occasionally to talk, and and they did invite me in and said, you know, we haven't got any friends in Washington. You know, Kissinger's old. Who can we talk to? And You know, I, that was a tiny thing. I mean, I'm nothing that in that the conversation really, but it was very interesting that they were worried because there was such deteriorating relationship with Washington. They need the the foreign markets. They need. They want investment still, even though they do want economic expansion, but not military. I think, and of course, we've now got this much tougher ruler. Who's tightened everything up? What about political changes within China itself? You have been in all your travels to Xinjiang quite a few times. Obviously, Xinjiang, unfortunately, is the region that is now known as the homeland of the Uyghurs, who are, of course, being put into these re-education camps. In China, how do you reconcile your love of the country with this country and its politicians that are really changing from how they were、uh, maybe ten, fifteen years ago? Well, I mean, I think it's most unfortunate, of course, and I,、uh, you know, I'm the first to say, you know, they should mistreat any of these Uyghurs, and it's a terrible thing to happen. Now they have all sorts of reasons why they're doing it, and so on and so forth. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's regrettable, but、uh, we know that the Chinese are extremely tough when they're threatened, and especially when they're threatened on the borders or independence, because the one thing they dread is becoming like Russia, where they divested themselves of their their outlying provinces and were reduced to this really quite 
small population country they are now. Some people have said or use this as reasons to really cut off ties with China. One word that we hear quite a lot is decoupling. What would you say to people who say that we should decouple from China politically or economically? Well, I mean, I think it would be disastrous for the rest of the world, not just economically, but from a cultural point of view. Because, I mean, China is one-fifth of the population of the world. It has the deepest and probably one of the most interesting cultures in the world. And we need to know the Chinese and to be friends with the Chinese. It would be an absolute disaster to decouple, it seems to me, and then cause what inevitably would be a confrontation. It, It would absolutely serve no good from any point of view. Tessa Keswick, thanks for a fascinating discussion and especially an intriguing view into the leadership of the Communist Party. And if you enjoy that podcast, please do listen back to previous episodes where I've been talking about Hong Kong, the national security concerns surrounding Chinese companies, WeChat and how it changes life in China, as well as China's wolf warriors. In future weeks, I might be taking you down the slightly lighter route, such as why the Chinese love luxury goods just so much. So thanks very much for listening and do, as ever, send in your thoughts at podcast at spectator.co.uk.